Hi, you're listening to the IDH Sustainable Trade Podcast. I'm Clara Grimes, and today we're going to talk about the green recovery. Here with me today is Ninka Stam, Program Director for Landscape Finance at IDH. And joining us from Conservation International are Bambi Semrock, Acting Senior Vice President for the Centre for Sustainable Lands and Waters, and John Buchanan, Vice President for Sustainable Production at Conservation International. The green recovery is a term some people are using to describe efforts to recover from the economic impacts of the coronavirus, while at the same time increasing efforts to progress on the sustainable development goals. Here with me is Ninka Stam. Ninka, welcome to the podcast. Many thanks, Clara. So, can you tell me a bit about why there's a need for the green recovery? Well, first, of course, we're in the middle of a global health crisis. So, that is definitely a global priority to support those that are facing these health challenges at this point. But the UN this month also estimated that 71 million people will be pushed back into poverty in 2020. And that's a unique situation that we're facing in the world. This is actually the first time that the number of poor people globally is increasing since 1998. And I think one of the things that this global crisis has also shown us is how vulnerable the poor globally are to these type of crises in terms of health impacts of COVID-19, but also vulnerability of our global food system. And this is going to require investments into agriculture, and that's going to need to be an investment into sustainable agriculture, also to make sure that that food system in the future is resilient. So investments into regional food supply chains, uh, local food production uh, will be key also for economic recovery during COVID-19. So what a lot of organizations are advocating is that the recovery packages that governments and multilateral organizations are preparing should really focus at a transition towards a greener economy and really bring that economic development in line with the Paris targets and the sustainable development goals. So this green recovery is really an opportunity, and this is an opportunity to tackle the climate crisis and to really sort of smartly allocate resources where not only we help economies now to grow, but we help them grow in a sustainable way. There's a lot of discussion about allocating those funds right now, and of course a significant portion of them will be allocated to greening our energy consumption globally, so through investments into renewables and uh, and the clear energy transition path that has also a solid foundation in technology. But on the other hand, there's discussion around investing also now into a sustainable land management agenda. And that is, I think, the focus where IDH Landscapes program is also trying to make a change and help prepare for being able to absorb bigger amounts of capital into this space. So what does that actually mean, investing in a sustainable land management agenda? What does that mean in reality? Can you give me some examples? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll definitely give, uh, give that a try. Uh, well, actually, sustainable land management, it's also defined by the IPCC, so the International Panel on Climate Change, in their latest uh, January 2020 report. And what they're clearly recognizing there is that land really serves multiple purposes, which of course makes sense, right? Land is not only a carbon sink, of course, uh, trees and soil can absorb CO2 and carbon, but land serves many purposes. People live on land, food is being produced by land. The land is home to forests, biodiversity, water towers. So any investment into sustainable land management really has to tick all of those boxes. Do you have any examples of these kind of uh, sustainable land management projects that you've been referring to? Sustainable food systems, resilient food systems? 
Well, a strong trend that we see is investment into into agroforestry systems, uh, especially in sectors where smallholders are uh, are involved. An example is our work in the in the coffee sector in Vietnam. And I can say coffee sector, but it's increasingly becoming an agroforestry system investment. This is an area where farmers have been investing into irrigation ponds, also because this is an area under water stress, uh, but also replanting slopes and putting in windbreaks with native tree species, intercropping in schemes, uh, combining coffee with local food crops uh, and with, with shade trees that can later be used for timber. So those are really becoming more farming systems than, than big monoculture landscapes. And of course, those farming systems can serve multiple needs, export markets, domestic markets, uh, local food security, household nutrition. And I think that's a resilience agenda that really would need to be the future. Is it also the case that agricultural production or other use of land is actually creating emissions? Is it possible to reduce emissions through the way that we're using land? Yeah, definitely. There are well-known examples in the, in the livestock sector, in the rice producing sector, uh, where actually those sectors emit greenhouse gas emissions, uh, carbon, methane gas. And there are other production methods that can be introduced in those locations that actually reduce emissions, including, of course, uh, improved peatland management regimes, where there are many examples of those in, in Indonesia. You mentioned that in many parts of the world, people have different visions for how their land should be used. If we're talking about trying to make a transformative change happen, where is this money coming from? What, are, what kind of sources are available of financing for sustainable land use management projects? That's interesting. Well, as IDH, we partner with several of those uh, sustainable land management investment funds. So there's the Land Degradation Neutrality Fund, uh, managed by Mirova Altelia. That's a fund that is really looking at opportunities where it can invest into restoring the productivity of degraded lands. So this investment vehicle invests into mostly companies that then replant areas with degraded land through agroforestry schemes and through other sustainable land management-based practices. And of course, those investments produce yields, including in timber, cocoa, coffee, uh, other traded commodities, agricultural commodities. And from those productive aspects, the loans are being repaid. Well, of course, there are a number of of dedicated investment funds in place that really focus on, on investment into sustainable land use. For example, the funds that IDH partners with, which is the Land Degradation Neutrality Fund uh, and Green Fund, uh, Agri3 Fund. So dedicated vehicles really looking at this niche in the market. But increasingly, there are also frameworks that many other investors adhere to. Uh, and one of the examples is the IUCN Nature-Based Solutions Framework that was launched yesterday. So the private sector can already do a lot. So the opportunity that's on the table now is actually a blended finance opportunity. It's mobilizing the funds from governments, the EU, uh, multilateral organizations, local government, World Bank funds, combined with private sector efforts into resilient food production systems and ecosystems with that. Can you give any examples of these kinds of investment projects? Or where has this happened in the past? I think there are a number of locations in the world, and I think that's the point that we're trying to make with this paper that we launched together with Conservation International, where there are, well, to use a word, shuffle-ready projects on the ground that have been prepared through this multi-stakeholder partnership setting and that are now ready to be scaled up with this type of blended finance instrument. And, and examples are there, also highlighted in the publication uh, in Vietnam, like I mentioned, a proven system that can now be scaled up 
uh, in Indonesia, where inclusive land use plans have been developed that include smallholders, include transitions out of peatland, include uh, solid conservation of, uh, of forests and biodiversity, and the investment into a land use agenda. In Brazil, in Liberia, in the cocoa sector, there are many examples on the table ready, and this is really a unique opportunity where we can now use funds from both government and the private sector, creating direct jobs in an area where that is needed, but also preparing the ground for a resilient production system. Many companies at the moment are interested in offsetting their carbon emissions by buying carbon credits. Would you say that it's possible for companies to buy enough carbon credits to soak up all of their emissions and meet the kind of 100% carbon neutrality targets we're seeing in companies' sustainability strategies? Is this possible? Well, this is a really good question. What actually most data proves, including from IPCC and WRI, uh, is that for fully absorbing the current emissions, there would not be enough land available. The carbon agenda or the climate agenda is an agenda of end and So companies have to reduce emissions and at the same time look at opportunities to offset these emissions that they're still making. It needs to be reducing emissions and at the same time trying to offset where possible. And related to the offset agenda, as said, land serves these multiple purposes. So really treating land as a carbon sink, that will be a very challenging concept. Because of course, in most areas of the world, there are people living on that land And those people may also have different visions on what to do with their land. How does that work in practice? What are some ways that that can be reconciled? Or is there any hope for reconciling these conflicting visions? That's a really good question. And uh, and I think also very important. So some of the practices that IDH has been implementing through its landscapes program is actually doing exactly that. Going to regions where natural resources are under stress uh, through deforestation, through overuse of water resources, and then bringing stakeholders together in those landscapes to develop a joint vision on the core issues and from there develop a way forward. So this is what we call our convening role. So in many places around the world, we've sat down with the private sector, the government, local communities, local smallholders, and developed participatory land use plans and visions on how to sustainably use land in that region, including then what practices do we need to start phasing out And what type of investment do we actually need to get to this new agenda? And I think this is also a good tie-in with economic recovery packages. Because land is often um, such a challenging topic, in many places around the world there may not be ready-made solutions on the table where a lot of capital can be absorbed into a transition towards sustainable agriculture. But organizations like IDH, but also Conservation International or other international partners have been working on this landscape approach, really putting stakeholders around the table for this common vision, including a jointly agreed investment plan and agenda. And if now these economic recovery packages can be used strategically into those regions to help incentivize and get that transformation into place, that would, in our view, of course, be a big step forward. Some argue that focusing on sustainable development at a time like this is detracting attention from recovery from the coronavirus or protecting people from further infection as the virus is still raging around the world. Do you think that focusing on sustainable development now is taking away from helping people recover from the impacts of the pandemic? Well, of course, we're still in the middle of a global health crisis and resources are needed to take care of people at this point. But the other discussion is around economic recovery. 
and creating jobs. And in my view, it would be a missed opportunity if those jobs are created for the short term. And sustainable development does not only mean green development, it also means resilient development and development in the long term. And that is the opportunity that a lot of organizations can now embrace. So if there's so much potential for return on investment for investing in sustainable landscapes, why are we not already doing it? Well, the short answer to that is because it's complicated. There are many stakeholders involved around sustainable land management. It's the private sector looking at its own agenda. Uh, it's local communities also using that land for multiple purposes. It requires often government efforts, especially around uh, protection of water basins, of forests. So it requires for all those actors to agree together and well, point the noses into the same direction. So what would you say is the future of uh, the green recovery? Which are, are the areas that we can expect to see a lot of investment and which would be wise investment decisions for investors or for governments when they're planning green recovery stimulus packages? First, as we discussed, there's the, there's the global energy transition and that will continue to be a core priority. And then on the sustainable land management side, there are opportunities out there where organizations have already done the groundwork and the foundation is there for creating direct green jobs in ecosystem recreation, sustainable agriculture, and nature-based solutions in infrastructure. So my recommendation would be to really look out for those opportunities and, and open the door for conversations to see if the funds that are now being mobilized for economic recovery can also be future-proof and prepare for, uh, for resilient, sustainable economies, also in the land use side. Many thanks, Ninka. So let's take up your recommendation right away to open the door for conversation and invite Conservation International, Bambi Semrock and John Buchanan, uh, to share their experience. Welcome, Bambi. Welcome, John. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks, Clara. Pleasure to be with you this morning. So can you tell me a little bit about how nature can support the green recovery? So at Conservation International, we believe that nature is really essential for achieving a sustainable post-COVID recovery. We know that the destruction of nature and forests in particular is really a critical risk factor for the emergence of pandemics. And we've seen this as COVID-19 has spread. And recently, um, leading economists have shown that some of the most significant gains in job creation, long-term economic performance really came from investments that protect and enhance nature. We know that investing in nature is not only a way to prevent future outbreaks, but it also strengthens the communities and the economies that really depend on it. We've been looking at a recent study that some of our um, scientists at Conservation International worked on together with a number of other colleagues from other organizations that tried to estimate what are the economic costs of COVID in 2020. And they found that the world could lose at least $5 trillion dollars. Um, U.S. dollars in 2020 from, from the pandemic. And then they also looked at, in contrast, what would annual prevention costs be um, that would be associated with forest conservation and wildlife trade regulation, which are really the drivers of transfer of disease from, from species to humans. And they found that that would cost an estimated 22 to $31 billion per year. So there's an order of magnitude difference in terms of what it costs to prevent the destruction of nature and prevent pandemics versus what it costs to recover from them. And then we also know that anytime we reduce deforestation at this kind of level, 
we have the ability to provide significant um, social benefits, um, especially through avoided greenhouse gas emissions that really help stabilize our, our climate. And that same study estimated that those social benefits could be upwards of $4 billion. Um, so significant potential for nature to provide the economic drivers for um, sustainable development. It's just a matter of trying to coalesce the right stakeholders around that type of recovery and that type of global agenda. And if I could build on to that, Clara, you know, one of the things that Nika mentioned before was the idea of sustainable land management and Conservation International also takes a land and a seascape based approach to nature based sustainable development. And really the sustainable landscape and seascape approach is really uh, core to our work. And, you know, we recognize that we need to find win-win opportunities for the the communities and the populations that are living in and around important areas for conservation. So we've got to find approaches and solutions that work for those communities and for wildlife and maintain healthy ecosystems that provide benefits in the form of, of fresh water and clean air and food and storm protection to populations locally, regionally, and globally. And so we've identified uh, um, 16 priority places around the world where we're working to bring together governments, private sector, and civil society around sustainability objectives, and then driving the finance, technical assistance, other investments and interventions that are needed to achieve those goals together. And what it comes down to in these places and, and in these integrated approaches is how do we align good governance with economic opportunities and nature conservation at these really important places? And then how do we leverage these models and approaches to replicate them and achieve impact at scale? So, you know, an example of one of the places in which we do this would be in Indonesia, where we're working with IDH and with a range of other partners on the ground. Uh, we've, you know, worked to help local communities, cocoa, coffee, palm oil farmers to increase their uh, production of those key crops and in some, you know, providing training and technical assistance. And in some cases, that's increased their productivity by, you know, 60 or 100% in some cases, or improving their productivity and their, their profitability of their existing farms, but then also working in those same landscapes with the governments and other key stakeholders to identify and conserve the important natural areas because those are providing uh, fresh water to the communities. They're protecting those areas from floods and landslides uh, that are important in some of these hills areas. And so I think it gets to that point of really these integrated approaches to um, uh, sustainable development. So what I'm hearing from you and also from Ninka is um, the crucial role that communities that live in these areas play and their, their active involvement and that their voice is heard. So how does that work? What are some methods that can be used to ensure that this is carried out properly? It's a great question, Clara, and it's probably one of the more challenging ones to, to actually work through with communities. But I think there are some tried and tested models and tools that are out there and approaches in terms of how you enter into communities and how you engage with them in a very rights-based approach. Um, and at Conservation International, we adopt um, social safeguards and rights-based approach in the way that we enter into dialogue with, with communities that we're working with. Um, another tool that we use in a number of of organizations use around the world is the free prior informed consent 
model. So making sure that communities understand their rights, that they provide um, consent um, for the engagement that they're under undertaking, and that they understand kind of what they're what they're getting into um, with us. And we have other models in terms of the way that we do this in a number of places as we um, engage with communities. We do a feasibility assessment of what the opportunities are and what some of the, the costs of those opportunities might be to those communities and trying to figure out and negotiate with the communities what would it take um, to engage in in conservation or change behavior um, so that we can achieve um, joint conservation benefits and and how can Conservation International or some of our partners provide services to the communities in return for those conservation actions. And then I would say that you know, a lot of these approaches and, and these examples are highlighted in the, the paper um, that IDH and Conservation International put out um, recently. And really, we want that paper to really serve as a, a call to action for others to take on these types of approaches and really implement them um, so that we can achieve the impact at scale that we really need to. And that paper is available to download and read from the IDH website if you're interested. So Bambi, I think you've made it very clear how communities can be involved according to the principles of free prior and informed consent. But John, earlier on, you also referred to engaging the private sector. So how can companies be mobilized to invest in nature? So it's a great question, Clara. And I think that, you know, companies are increasingly, you know, recognizing the importance of investing in protecting and restoring nature to ensure supply security and business continuity in the long term. And, you know, the, the challenges we face now as a global community related to COVID-19 have, have really revealed the, the fragility and the volatility of our global economy uh, in economic, social, and environmental terms. And, you know, we've seen this especially in commodity supply chains. It's been, you know, reflected in price shocks and, and supply disruptions and, and other volatility. And I think companies recognize that this is a real threat and a challenge and that, you know, they know they their businesses and their supply chains can't thrive if the environment around them is, is failing. And so, you know, CI, our work with the private sector, and particularly in, in, in a key sectors like uh, coffee and palm oil, uh, seafood, cocoa, uh, soy, the fashion sector. These are really a, a key part of our strategy to uh, enable uh, nature-based sustainable development and try and transition entire sectors. And so, you know, companies are seeing the importance of really bringing nature into their sustainability strategies longer term. And so just, you know, as a couple of examples, we work with companies like um uh, Apple or Procter and Gamble who are working with CI and investing in protection and uh, sustainable management and restoration of forests, and grasslands, and mangroves, and other natural areas as a part of their broader sustainability strategies. And again, because these companies recognize that the challenges they face with sustainable supply chains, sustainable businesses, go far beyond their direct footprints and go beyond the direct control of their suppliers, they need to be working in partnership and collaboration with other groups and other other peers and uh, partners like like. 
CI and IDH. And so a lot of CI's work is also about how do we build those coalitions and those collaborations to kind of bring partners together to have greater impact. And this example might be our work in the coffee sector with the Sustainable Coffee Challenge, uh, which was launched in 2015 in December at the Paris COP with about 18 partners. And today we have over 150 partners in the coffee sector working to align sustainability commitments to common goals and targets and identify opportunities to collaborate in key coffee producing regions. And so, you know, if you bring that type of collaboration down to key commodity producing regions, for example, where we work in Indonesia with, with IDH and other partners, we've created something uh, called the Coalition for Sustainable Livelihoods, which is an example of bringing government private sector, communities, and civil society together to focus on how do we advance sustainable development in specific places and what are the investments needed uh, by private sector, by governments, and how do we bring together sustainable production and conservation to advance sustainable development. Clara, if I could just add on to what John what John mentioned, we know that a lot of this is driven by you know the fragility of these global supply chains and these global markets, um, but a lot of it is also driven by the role of of climate change and the recognition that climate change is, is really upsetting the supply chain and the long term resilience of these economies and these businesses. And so, what Ninke already mentioned in terms of the role of carbon offsets and and how companies might be thinking about this, and that's some of the work that we've been doing with companies like Apple or Procter and Gamble, a number of others who are coming to us and asking, like, okay, what, you know, how could we think about this and think about it differently? And what we do is we try to work with them to think about how can they set a science-based um, target for carbon that would actually decarbonize them by a certain date. And we know that that's essential to getting the world on track to where we need to be to limit um, global warming by mid-century. But we also know that that's not quite enough because you can avoid and mitigate and reduce your, your emissions, but you're going to take some time to do that. And in the meantime, we're continuing to emit more greenhouse gases up into the atmosphere. And so what we've been trying to do is work with companies to say, yes, go towards those goals. That's essential. And let's try to invest in the one technology that we know works right now to take carbon out of the atmosphere, and that's trees, and that's forest conservation. And so if we invest in that now, and we conserve these areas, we restore these areas, we know that we can actually sink more carbon out of the atmosphere and, and into um, nature. And unfortunately, we're just not investing enough in that right now. About 3% of the world's investment in, in climate change right now is going into these nature um, natural climate solutions in terms of conservation of forests and restoration of forests in particular. And we know that at the same time, we're losing an area the size of Belgium in terms of primary tropical forests each year. So there's a, a juxtaposition there in terms of how are we thinking about this? How are we investing? Are we making sure that the stocks are really there to absorb the carbon that we're releasing into the atmosphere while we ad advance this um, decarbonization strategy um, for, for the private sector? And so really trying to promote the science-based targets approaches that many companies are taking um, and encouraging them to work with many of our partners um, who, who help set science-based targets. We're really pleased that um, through the science-based targets initiative for, for, for climate, over 950 companies are already setting um, and pursuing those types of decarbonization goals. Um, which is really essential for, like I said, getting us on track to stabilizing our global climate. 
Um, and then building on that, there's a whole science-based targets network or science-based targets for nature initiative that's really trying to build on the success of our carbon, the carbon and climate work to say, how can we set science-based targets for land, for oceans, for freshwater, for biodiversity? So what are we taking out of those systems and how do we compensate for that and give back to it? Um, so that's a really exciting piece of work now to think about not just how we think about how we invest in, in forest conservation and landscapes for carbon, but how do we invest in it so that we're conserving the other essential ecosystem services that these landscapes um, really provide? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you've referred to science-based targets, and John, you've referred to companies' own corporate commitments to sustainability. So let's think ahead to 2025 and imagine that the global community has managed to recover from the social and environmental economic effects of COVID-19 and managed to make some real headway on the sustainable development goals. So in this dream scenario in the future, what have we done right? Well, I think that we're going to make forward progress and towards sustainable development goals if we can do a number of things. And, you know, the first thing we need to do is to really do a better job of recognizing the value of nature in our, you know, economies and the contribution that nature provides to economies and sustainable development, the points we've talked about earlier and Inka mentioned as well. And, and really not just do this in theory, but, but think about what how do we make that real for landowners and land managers as they have to make decisions on a daily basis about how they're going to support their families? So we have to bring that value of nature to life in, in those types of decisions. And, you know, part of that means that we have to think about in the places where, you know, we produce the things that are, where things are produced that we need and commodities and materials and so forth. What are the, the incentives and, and how do we get those incentives right for land managers, for governments and communities? How do we rebalance power dynamics to make sure that you know communities and smallholders aren't disadvantaged and that they really benefit from sustainable development? And you know, we need to work with governments to improve their capacity for regulation and enforcement so that you know critical natural areas are conserved and you know communities benefit in an equitable manner. And that also means we need to really Think about, you know, Bambi mentioned some of the science that's helping us understand these areas and how important they are and how to prioritize. We need to bring that type of, of science into the decision making. And, and all of this really requires, as was alluded to before, partnerships and collaboration at a whole new scale. So we need to figure out, like, bringing the communities, private sector governance, the right finance together so that we can really identify the right sustainable development pathways for key regions in the world and how do we move towards those goals collectively together and you know again i mentioned some of our work with idh in indonesia the coalition for sustainable livelihoods is a great example of that of trying to develop those place-based collaborations and plans with government and working together to to implement those and i think if we can do that and create those new types of partnerships and collaboration uh, we will make progress and move towards the sustainable development goals and I think I would just add that I think we have amazing projects around the world that are doing this work with local communities and with smallholder producers in particular. Um, we're doing that in isolation, you know, it's kind of piecemeal and spread throughout a lot of different places. And so what John's talking about is this idea of how do you scale that? How do you actually, you know, bring that together in a way that we're learning from one another and we're actually able to replicate from community to community, from state to state, 
um, province to province, from country to country, and really get that order of magnitude that we're talking about in terms of what we need to really conserve and restore and improve the management of, of a lot of these areas. And so I think it really comes down to a couple of things that John was really pointing out. It's like our incentive structures right now just don't really incentivize nature, you know, nature conservation. They incentivize economic development and rightly so in terms of people need food, they need jobs, they need income. Um, but our markets actually don't you know, rightly incentivize conservation in the same way that they incentivize extraction from, from nature. And so we have to fix that. We have to figure out, okay, how can we balance out that scheme where we're paying, you know, producers for the agricultural products that they're, they're producing, but we're also paying them for the ecosystem services that they're producing, like carbon, like fresh water, like other benefits. So we've got to figure out ways to stack those benefits and actually pay for those benefits in a meaningful way, in a tangible way that actually puts more money in the hands of, of producers. And in order to do that, we've got to change some power dynamics um, because markets right now, they extract and there's a lot of power that comes in terms of who gets funding or who gets money from, from those markets and who doesn't, um, who gets more money, who gets less. We've got to figure out a way to balance out that power dynamic system. And the only way to do that is really to say, do what John was saying is bring the right stakeholders around the table to discuss that, do it openly and have a neutral facilitator doing that. Um, it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be an easy thing to do in terms of trying to reshape how our economic systems work. But we do feel like we can have some great successes. And then again, it's about building on those successes and replicating them and really showing that this can work. Thanks so much, Bambi and John, for these insights and for joining me today. Thanks, Clara. Thanks so much, Clara. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to turn back to Ninka Stam for a last word on what the green recovery will take to sustain in the long term and serve people and the planet. So green recovery in the land use sector. Of course, to many, it's important to create jobs right now because that's what people need. Also individual households to be able to buy food and overcome the poverty situation. Most of these economic stimulus packages are trying to create immediate jobs and what we're arguing together with Conservation International in the paper is saying that those green jobs can also be created in the conservation sector. So what we're arguing together with Conservation International is that those green jobs can also be created in ecosystem restoration projects, in sustainable agriculture projects, uh, in green infrastructure projects, so really in line with the bigger nature-based solutions targets also of the climate agenda. And those opportunities are there. Both our organizations, but also other organizations have uh, examples, have uh, experiences in this, and also have prepared projects that are actually waiting for this type of investment to come in. And this is an opportunity that through our paper, we really try to highlight. Say, hey, governments, investors, if you consider economic recovery in the light of COVID-19, engage us, let's have a conversation, and let's see also how the capital that's being injected now can create returns and jobs at this moment, but also creates resilience and secure income in the future. So as a final point, what advice would you give to governments or investors who are preparing their economic stimulus packages? Well, first of all, as discussed at the beginning of the discussion, uh, there's the energy transition opportunity that is clearly there. And that definitely will require a lot of resources. And on the other hand, there's sustainable land management agenda. And that's where also there is opportunity for creating direct green jobs. So jobs in ecosystem restoration, 
jobs in sustainable agriculture, jobs in putting in place green infrastructure. And that investment will really enable future-proof development. So in that sense, be a real sustainable economic recovery package. And I think that's the core of our recommendation. So governments, investors, engage your partners in, in looking for these opportunities, because in many countries, a lot of groundwork is already in place and green jobs can directly be created in the land use space. Thank you very much, Nika, and thank you for joining me today. Join us next time on the IDH Sustainable Trade Podcast. <laughs>